Are you ready to put down that drink or drug for good? Are you struggling to maintain your recovery from addictive behaviors? Do you need help with a family member or loved one who's in early recovery or battling addiction? Get the help and guidance you need by arranging a recovery recharged phone session with me, Ellen Stewart, Pushy Broad from the Bronx, Certified Life and Recovery Coach. Call 1-800-889-1757. Make an appointment today or go to my website, pushybroadfromthebronx.com and click on the link that says Recovery Recharged. Don't wait. Get the help you need today. This is Ellen Stewart, Pushy Broad from the Bronx on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Hey, everybody, welcome. This is it. This is it. I am so thrilled to be here with Ellen Stewart. And what a fabulous show she has lined up for everybody here. I'm Dr. Pat. I get to hang out and be part of this. But today, it's especially important. It's especially important. I can't even tell you how important it is right now. But Ellen, it's super important for you. And you have outlined a, how should I say, blockbuster show today for a very important reason. It's Very great month. cool. Great month. Tell us what month it is. Well, it is National Recovery Month. And it happens every September. For me personally, it's a big deal because on September 4th, I just celebrated 35 years in recovery. Yeah. So it's kind of, whoop, whoop, you know, fantastic. So September is a great month. And they have a special theme every single year. And as you know, the theme this year is the voices of recovery joined celebrating connections, right? How yeah. we connect with our community and how we come together as a community. So that's really important. Yeah. You know, it, it is, let's just talk about this for a hot minute and then introduce our fabulous, fabulous guest. In this particular month, when we're thinking about the 2020 National Recovery Month, about joining the voices of recovery, many people didn't see this coming. And what do, we, what do I mean by the this? What, do I, what I mean by the this didn't see the transformation, and I want to say drastic transformation, of the way recovery is happening. Now, COVID-19 has really upped the ante. Don't you find it interesting that here we are in the National Recovery Month and recovery has changed its face to many? Most definitely, but now we're learning to adapt and still through all of this, learning how to still be part of a community, whether it's virtual or in person. I mean, it's certainly gone through a tremendous upheaval, but with more and more resources available, we're still able to make that connection. So that becomes a wonderful thing. And we're still able to celebrate some of the things that we did right and, and um, look at some of the things that we could have done better. Right. That's what joining community is all about and reworking it constantly different ways going into the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021. Don't you think, Dr. Pat? Oh, I, I think that uh, I can't tell you how many meetings I've been at or GSR positions I've had 
where I brought the whole online conversation to multiple conferences, and now here we are. Because it is about recovery, isn't it? We have very special guests today, don't we? We do. It is my pleasure to bring to the Transformation Talk Radio Recovery Recharge Show today. Of course, very typical of me, Pushy Broad from the Bronx wants to bring somebody that comes in loud and proud about recovery like you and I. We have today Harry Kinane, and he has been an active member of the addiction recovery community since almost seven years ago. He participates in a 12-step program. He's volunteered at treatment centers and jails around Philly and spread the word of hope everywhere. And he now works in a very special way as a regional resource director for Karen Treatment Centers in Pennsylvania and on the East Coast, where he now completely helps people getting clean and sober and bringing families and treatment to them. So I would like to introduce Harry, and I want Harry to share with us his story of hope and recovery. Welcome, Harry. It's great to have you here on Transformation Talk Radio. Ellen and Dr. Pat, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here and great to be a part of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to have you here. It's great. Thank you. Part of National Recovery Month is is letting people know that we do recover, we do get better, that we are not stuck in a cycle of active addiction. And it's and today I wanted you to be here from the point of view of not only being someone in recovery, but I wanted you to communicate to the parents out there that are thinking that their situation is hopeless and they don't know how to get help for their child. So I want you to run through us with us a little little bit your beginnings so let's talk about how old you were and and what that whole situation was like when you were active for sure and I think that's so important because addiction really just touches and affects the whole family in such a major way and I know you know speaking for my parents and my family trying to navigate and understand what was happening was a real real trend real challenge um but before we get to that part of it, just to give you a little bit of background. I started drinking alcohol when I was 13 or 14. It was right when I was going into high school and, you know, really just surrounded by friends that it it seemed normal. It seemed like the thing to do. It didn't seem that risky at the time. So that was really, you know, for me, the the very beginning. Um, And from there, it, it pretty quickly progressed. You know, it was something that I had been a part of the D.A.R.E. program in in grade school and I saw the images and I didn't think I would ever drink or smoke or use any drugs at all. Um, But when the time came that first night and, you know, a couple friends of mine had had purchased some, you know, beer, got it through their brothers or however they got it. um, I was a lot quicker than I thought to say yes. You know, I thought it was okay. I thought it was a rite of passage, something to make me feel more more grown up, more mature. And I think that that was something at the time that I was really, really searching for as someone trying to figure out who I was going into high school. When did your parents find out that you were starting to drink or starting to dabble? How did that happen? So the first time that my parents found out, um, I was out with a couple of friends and we were drinking in the woods and, um, 
I was, I, I got away, but a couple of friends of mine, the cops came and broke up the party and a couple of friends of mine got underage drinking citations. Um, so the way it worked out, my parents were sitting at home with their parents. They were all hanging out while we were, you know, telling them we were somewhere else, but the other parents got a call from, from the local police department and uh, my parents by default knew I was involved and knew I was there. So that was the first interaction. I was probably about 14 or 15, so pretty early. You know, it, yeah. it's, did you want to say something, Dr. Pierre? Yeah, I did. I, I want to just point some, a couple of things out as we're talking about, you know, we're talking about this month as National Recovery Month. And, you know, when we start to talk about this, Harry, uh, and when we start to talk about this, Ellen, you know, there may be people listening that may or may not understand the story of things. And let me just point this out. So when Harry, when you talk about like, when did you start, so to speak, and you give the age that you gave, right? It's so easy to blow by that, right? It's so easy to be like, what did he say? Was that 13? 30? Did he say 30 or did he say 13? Um, because some of our backstory is about the challenges that didn't seem like challenges when we were very young. And when you talk about these things, and especially if parents are listening, or if, if people are listening that are not sure that they're caught in the middle of, I just drink a little bit and I have a real problem here. Because this is something that really has no, none, no discretion. You know, when we talk about national recovery and we talk about addiction, you know, it is very clear we're talking about a disease that has been categorized as such. We're talking about something that takes hold of you, right, so strongly that powerless is the perfect word. And so I just wanted to make sure we didn't zip by part of your story because some folks still believe, well, doesn't this happen when you're 21? You know, doesn't something happen like this when, you know, you're maybe going through some hormonal change? And that's why we're talking about where we are today. It starts when it starts. It starts when it starts. 12, 13, 7, 8, it starts when it starts. But the point is, when it does start, you're powerless over stopping it to a point some people think. That's all I want to say right there. Well, you know, you're very right. And and I know, Harry, you want to say something about it. But when you, like you said, you got caught very young, 12, 13, 14 years old. Did you have, did your parents have a discussion with you beforehand at that age and say to you, um, you know, you're going to, your kids are going to be drinking or doing drugs. I mean, does that, dis did that discussion start with your parents when you were 12, 13, 14, or they didn't even think it was something that they needed to talk about with you? I think it came up briefly. I'm sure when I was, you know, in the D.A.R.E. program at my school, I think I was probably in seventh or sixth or seventh grade for that. So I'm sure there was some conversation, but really, you know, to go back to what Dr. Pat mentioned, um, you know, I was blindsided by this. I was, I grew up in a amazing, loving home. I grew up with, you know, my parents who fully supported me. And 
um, you know, for me, it was just not something that that I saw coming. I couldn't see the trajectory from that first drink. It felt so innocent and sort of like a small decision. But like Dr. Pat said, it really, once it took hold, there was no, there was no power that I had that was going to do anything to stop that. And also just at that, that age, you know, in hindsight, at the time I felt so mature. I have an eight-year-old daughter now who's, you know, about to turn nine. And to think in just a couple of years, she could feel the way that I felt then is terrifying. Um, so, you know, really that, that young age and that family component, it was, it was talked about, but never, not in a way that I worried about it or thought I needed to worry about it. So here you are, maybe you thought that maybe part of that was peer pressure, being liked, being accepted, yes, in the general scheme of things. Um, but still, what distinguishes us as people in recovery or people that have a problem is the fact that you soon begin to, to understand that the way you approach it is very different from someone else. Yes. So let's talk about that a little bit, Harry. When did yeah. that happen for you? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, for me, it happened really, I'd say right away. The first time I ever drank, I didn't drink enough to get drunk. I didn't feel the, you know, the euphoria feeling. I just felt sick to my stomach. Um, so I didn't really see the draw after that first time. But the second time I drank, I drank enough to feel it. Um, and from that moment on, it was something that I was just it consumed what I wanted to do. You know, I remember being on the bus on the way to school in high school and just talking about when are we going to do that again? And, you know, as young 14 year olds with my friends, it, a lot of us were talking about that way because it was new, it was exciting. Um, and at the time I couldn't see that maybe I was more into it than they were. Um, but in hindsight, it was all I wanted to do. The sports, the extra, curricular activities that I was involved in really immediately took a backseat in my mind, at least. They didn't disappear right away. Right. In my mind, that was my priority was, you know, having fun, so to speak, or what I thought was having fun. Right. Right. You know, you know how I knew that there, there, there was a little something, something going on with this? Bizarre. This is how I knew. And, and for people that think, you know, you, you people know, I, I can't tell you how many folks have said to me this, Harry, Ellen, you people, you know, you know, when, when you're it, you know, when you're out of, no, no, people don't know. Uh, people don't know what they don't know. Maybe other people tell you, I had a hint of it. It's going to seem bizarre, but this was a hint. I don't remember what year it was. I think it was maybe 1980 or something. And I was taking a full month off. I never had time off from work. I was a workaholic. And by the way, that is a known thing. Just saying. But I was going to go to Florida, visit my relatives. And I was going to go to Disney. Like the whole Disney and the Florida thing. And you go... And I, and I had a realization that there are no bars in Disneyland, that there is no place in Disneyland to get 
a drink. And I was willing to cancel the reservation, delete everything that was going to go on there. And my best friend said to me, seriously? Seriously? You're not going to, you're going to, what, thousands of dollars? Seriously? Now, I wish I would say to all of you that that is when the light bulb on and I plugged myself into high voltage. No. So today you're sharing something that many people don't realize, but we're watching the rise of, of this illness. We're watching it rise as we speak. That's all I wanted to say there, Ellen. I understand. But, you know, also what it points out is that it starts very, very young. And you both have made that point. And also being having an addictive brain and wanting more and more is something that we are not conscious of. But it doesn't mean that that we should overlook it. And sometimes that starts as early as 12, 13, 14 years old. So when parents turn around to me as a recovery coach and say, oh, it's just a phase or it will pass, or I did the same thing when I was in school and I got over it, not everybody's the same. And that's the most important thing. And it could not be overlooked. And just because it starts at 13 or 14 and one thinks, oh, by the time they're 16 or 17, it'll go away, the addictive brain does not go away. And that's the point that we're all making at this moment. So, Harry, in continuing your story, you found out that it, it was preoccupying your time. It was interfering with everything you were doing. So, of course, it begins to escalate. So, so what happened next in your behavior? Tell us. So the sort of quick version, it escalated for me relatively quickly. Um, you know, I came to find out I loved the feeling that alcohol gave me, but I didn't like what it did to my stomach and some of the you know, other symptoms. So that's when I started smoking pot. And for me, that was an easy transition because it gave me a very similar feeling without the discomfort in my stomach. And it was something that I could do without slurring my speech or having maybe more noticeable, um, making it more noticeable to the outside world. I could put eye drops in and, you know, put some cologne on and People didn't really know as easily, um, you know, and I think something going back to the parent aspect of it, I learned, you know, more recently though, is that night when I was 14 or so and my friends got caught drinking um, was the only time that my parents knew for sure that I was intoxicated throughout my entire time using. So I think that's really important to just highlight because after I started smoking pot, that almost immediately turned into every day. And um, when I was about 16 or so, after a night of drinking and smoking, um, I had blacked out and I came to and was told that I had done cocaine, which to me was that was the next level. That was a more serious drug. I wasn't going to do that. Um, but being told that I had already done it took away some of what made it taboo and it made me curious. And I immediately that night wanted to try it again um, because I had done it, but I didn't remember how it made me felt. And the moment I did that again, it was that same progression for me of now I have something that doesn't upset my stomach, doesn't leave an odor, 
It's small, it's easy to hide. I could use it throughout the day in high school. And it was something that just felt like an easy transition, but it's, you know, only in hindsight is that an easy transition because before I would have told you, I'm never going to do that. That's a hard drug, I'm not doing it. And, you know, again, it was just immediately, it answered the problems or solved the problems that I wanted, you know, and, and the issues with the other substances that were harder to mask and became my solution throughout, you know, the rest of high school. So that was, for me, I mean, a real turning point because then it made, you know, everything else was a little bit more within reach. Once I had justified doing cocaine, you know, the other things didn't seem quite so bad anymore. You know, there are so many studies and so many differences of opinion when yeah. it comes to what actually a gateway drug is. Yep. Okay. There are so many I have seen over the years in the 35 years that I'm clean and sober, the argument for, well, it's just pot and pot doesn't really lead to anything else. And if they're just smoking pot, it's no big deal. And it's not a gateway drug and blah, 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 blah. And here's proof positive that if you have the propensity to be an addict and have an addictive brain, then alcohol is a gateway drug to pot. Pot is a gateway drug to cocaine. Cocaine can be a gateway drug to something more, okay? An addictive brain that any mood-altering substance becomes a gateway drug to something more. Because as an active addict, we constantly crave that let's get higher feeling. Let's get higher. So here you are saying basically what, um, what I've been saying, and I know Dr. Pat shares with me for yeah. forever. All right. Because if you have the propensity to be an addict, then any mood altering substance is a gateway drug. And Harry, you prove that. Exactly. Yeah. So where are your parents in this? Because I know parents just tear their hair out of their head. Tell us about it. So it was, it was difficult, right? Because I was good at hiding it, you know, and I quickly progressed to these other substances that were easier to hide than, you know, coming in drunk every night. And for me, it was, you know, I'll focus in on high school here because this is where a lot of the conflict with my parents started. So by my senior year in high school, I was using, you know, a combination of alcohol, marijuana, and cocaine every day. Um, you know, the which one and how much depended on how much I could get my hands on. Um, but I was not completely failing in school. Like I had applied to, I think I applied to 13 colleges and universities all over the country. I was accepted into 12 of them and I had about nine academic scholarships. So I had these external things that I could point to, to say, I'm not that bad. I'm not completely failing. I'm progressing. And it was once I was accepted into those schools that I just completely gave up on high school where I was and just said, you know what, I'm gonna ride this out. And it was at that point that the high school I went to identified that there might be a problem and requested that I get drug tested. Um, 
Wow. Let me just stop you here one second because I wanted to bring this up to Dr. Pat too, yeah. right? Yeah. Most most parents, because we I want to skip over this because yeah. most parents, especially with guys, okay, because these are the people I see all the time, right? In high school, if something is the matter and there and a child is doing drugs, a parent um, decides to look at it and say, "Oh my God, you know, my son Johnny is doing drugs because he's failing in school." right? Or he's getting into trouble, or he's playing hooky, or he's getting into fights, right? But Dr. Pat, that wasn't the case with Harry, right? He's got great grades and he's accepted into 12 colleges. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you can't always see that sign, right? What do you think? No, I agree with you. And I, and for me, I, I, I want to be a, a little bit clear because you are right, Harry. I mean, what you're here to talk about is to say, yeah, this doesn't look, have to look like what you see on your shoot 'em up movie, right? It doesn't have to look like this. And yes, are there some communities where it is, how should I say it, it more, more prevalent, it's saddened, suicide. Yes, I will talk, you know, I work with people in the LGBTQ community in recovery, and I will tell you that the reasons, so to speak, go deep, 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 deep. That's for another show. But it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change the fact that the beginnings of it and the sense of powerlessness and the emotional hook that's engaged in things, it, it doesn't change the impact and the effect and the outcome. It doesn't change yeah. it. Not at all. And it also means that the signs are always different. It's yes. not only the child that is having a difficult time socializing. It's not only the child that's getting in trouble and, and you know, and, and being arrested. It's not only the child that's flunking out of school. Sometimes it's the child that's doing really, really well and is the overachiever or the child that is hiding it so well that parents are not looking because there's nothing definitive happening to indicate a serious problem. Right. So that's a big deal. Right. So, all right, Harry. So here we are in a situation where you finally got into school, right? Did you live away? Did you live off, you know, you lived on campus, you lived away from mom and dad? So this was sort of the first time that I thought maybe there was a little bit of a problem, right? Because I mentioned that they wanted to start drug testing me and, um, I couldn't pass. I could put down the cocaine long enough. I could stop drinking, um, but I couldn't stop smoking pot long enough. So I kept failing these drug tests, which I was, you know, again, able to sort of try to rationalize that it's just pot. It's not that big of a deal. All sorts of high school kids are smoking. And, but I was realizing that I couldn't pass no matter how much I wanted to, and no matter how much my mom and I battled uh, in the weeks leading up to and after these tests, I couldn't pass one. So I decided initially that I was going to go to a school uh, relatively far away where I didn't know anyone, none of my friends were going, and I was going to try to start fresh. Um, so my first semester of college, I did that. And, you know, I immediately realized, which I've learned since being in recovery, but I brought myself with me. Um, the friends weren't the problem. The school wasn't the problem. 
I was able to find those same types of friends and those same dealers and everything I needed hundreds and hundreds of miles away within days. Um, yeah. And I was right back to where I was. Yeah. So yeah. That, was, that was quick. And I decided after that semester that, um, you know, I was going to transfer to another school closer to home where more friends were and I could, you know, be around that group that I was with in high school because it was easier. Um, you know, than having to really reestablish somewhere else. So even though I did well that first semester in, in college, when mm -hmm. I moved back is when, for me, the rails really started to fall off. Wow. With, with that first semester. You know, let's do this, Ellen. Why don't we take a short break? Because when we come back, let's talk about when enough gets to be enough. I like what you said, when the rails start to come off that when you get to that point, right, where that is the new energy, that right there, when the rails come off, when things in your life start to fall apart, when relationships are not staying together, when there's physical abuse, emotional abuse, whatever that looks like, now what? Ellen, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to make sure people have lots of information about you, about Harry, all of the above. But here's the thing. Now, what? We'll take a short break. We'll be right back. Raising the vibrations through stimulating conversations while exploring the mysteries of Atlantis and Lemuria on Tales from the Mer World Radio with me, Amirabeth. Join us every second and fourth Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Be ready to feel empowered and an active part of the changing earth. For more information about me, visit Amerabeth.com. Learn how to lead a happier life on Miles to Go with Brittany Miles. How to lose to gain it all. Join Brittany every second and fourth Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Listen as coach and healer Brittany Miles share stories that teach you about surrender. For more information about Brittany, MilesToGoCoaching.com. Get your goddess groove on with me, Laura Hosford. Tune in every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com, where I offer you authentic channel messages of love, inspiration, and heart-healing grace. Get your goddess groove on. When the goddess speaks, everyone listens. For more information, visit LauraHosford.com. That's LauraHosford.com. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show, talk radio to thrive by. I am so thrilled to be talking to all of you. We have got talk radio for all of us. Are you ready and willing and able to accept all of the abundance you can muster up in your life? Yeah. Check us out at drpatshow.com, transformationtalkradio.com, transformationradio.fm. Oh, my goodness. How to lead a happier life on Miles to Go with Brittany Miles. How to lose to gain it all. 
Join Brittany every second and fourth Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Listen as coach and healer Brittany Miles share stories that teach you about surrender. For more information about Brittany, MilesToGoCoaching.com. What would you do with the power of community? How do you create your own rituals? Tune in to Living Your Gifts with me, Susan Huff, Ancient Applications for Modern Times, the second Wednesday of each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Our lives begin with the stories we are told and the stories we tell ourselves. Storytelling is the key. To learn more about me, visit LivingYourGifts.com. That's LivingYourGifts.com. Hey, everybody, welcome back. You know, this is a place where you can get some help, whether it be for yourself or another. And maybe it's not for you or another that's close to you, but you know somebody that could use some help. That's what Recovery Recharge with Ellen Stewart, the push she brought from the Bronx is about. Today, she and Harry are celebrating National Recovery Month as well as I am. And we've talked a bit about what that is. You know, the theme is join the voices of recovery, celebrating connections. And that's why, Harry, you're here as well as you, Ellen. Um, Before we continue and find out, like, now what, that the rails, not only are they up, but they are like, wow, they are like totally wrecked. Um, How do we find out more, Ellen, about your work? And then, Harry, about you and your work? Everybody just has to go to pushybroadfromthebronx.com or call me on my 800 line, 800-889-1757. You all know that I'm doing uh, some free 30-minute COVID-19 stress sessions, and yeah. I'm also a certified recovery coach, especially since this is um, Recovery Month, National Recovery Month. Reach out for any kind of help at 800-889-1757. And Harry, tell us about the organization you work for. Great, thank you. So uh, I work for Karen Treatment Centers, which is a nonprofit treatment center located in Pennsylvania. We also have another location in Florida. Karen's been around for over 60 years, really leading, you know, leading what we do in terms of addiction treatment, substance use disorder, and co-occurring disorders. Um, so we have a really robust medical team and are highly focused on on research and, you know, trying to navigate and continue to evolve what are the best practices for treating substance use disorder. We have a wide variety of programs, uh, everything from adolescents up through older adults. Um, You can find out more at karen.org, www.karen, and that's spelled C-A-R-O-N.org. My name's Harry Kanan. You can find all of my contact information on there as well, cell phone, email. So if you have anything or need any need any assistance, don't hesitate to reach out. And Transformation Talk Radio listeners, I need to tell you that Karen is a place that I have recommended to many people over the years. I consider it to be the gold standard in treatment, and it's really important that you send your loved one to a place that you can trust. And I also will be putting Harry's contact information on our YouTube channel, and it'll also be available up on my website. So, Harry, let's continue with that story Dr. Pat was talking about. When everything comes off the rails, then what, right? What do we do now? So right before the break, I was talking a little bit about I transferred back up to, to Philadelphia and was going to a local school. And 
Um, you know, at this point, it did not take long for things to rapidly progress and really fall apart. So it was when I got back up to Philadelphia that I was introduced to opiates. I had tried painkillers and pills here and there when I was in high school and didn't think it was my thing. But when I was introduced to oxys um, at about 19 or so, I completely fell in love. They answered every question that I thought I had. Going back to that progression earlier, it had um, all of the effects that I wanted, the side effects, you know, that of cocaine, the not sleeping, some of those things that disappeared, everything was alleviated. And I thought I found my answer to life. Um, so, so for our listeners, you're talking about oxys, which means oxycontin, which are, which are what we're talking about here, right? Let's yeah. be specific. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Sorry. About that. That's all right. Um, so yeah, the, the prescription painkillers have felt cleaner, you know, not as dirty as the cocaine and, you know, felt like a safer choice. It felt, um, it, like, again, it was just, it was an easy progression, but at this point, things started to dramatically go downhill. I stopped eating for days at a time so that I could reinforce that high. Um, I would quite literally only eat when my migraines got so bad that even the hundreds of milligrams of Oxycontin wouldn't take away the migraine. And I would go and, um, you know, buy a little cake from a gas station because it had a lot of sugar and calories to knock that out. At this point, I was couldn't afford my habit at all. So I was stealing, I was lying, I was not able to meet obligations. I couldn't get to class. I found myself consistently in dangerous situations. So I was using in Philadelphia, um, you know, and there's some some difficult neighborhoods there. And I found myself held up at gunpoint a couple of times. I was in a home invasion where they they broke into the house that I was living in and um you know, held me hostage at gunpoint for a little while there as well. And throughout all of this, it's still, you know, I can't see a reason to stop. Um, I started getting in trouble with the school. I'm at the judicial board. I'm on academic probation because I'm failing. I'm on disciplinary probation because I'm acting out. And, you know, after about two or three semesters at this school, I, I went online one day and I looked at my grades and I was failing everything and I decided I had to drop out. So, you know, I left school and my worldview shrunk from this kid with all these opportunities to go to school with a scholarship to um, going to work in a warehouse. And, And I was okay with that because I didn't have the expectations on me anymore that I had to be something that, you know, because of the substance use, I knew I wasn't capable of, um, so I really just kind of shrunk into this smaller worldview. And and this, I, I knew at this point between the withdrawal, the stealing, the lying, the consequences that that I had a problem. Um, and what, what ended up happening was a girl that I was seeing at the time, I was 20 years old um, and I found out that she was pregnant. And I'm 20, completely caught up in opiate addiction and for a moment, I believed that this was this was what I needed. This was that that moment. It was going to give me the willpower, and I was going to turn my life around because 
I had a father figure that I looked up to and I wanted to be like him. And I knew I wouldn't be able to do that with, with the using. Um, so I had this moment of hope, right? And, and I really tried to take advantage of it. I tried to, to taper myself down. I tried to stop in any different way that I could except asking for help. Uh, and I think, you know, right before my daughter was born, I might've been able to put together three, four, five days without using. Um, and I thought I had this thing beat, everything was lining up. And the night that my daughter was born, I was sober, um, but within minutes after her birth, I called my dealer and said, hey, we gotta celebrate. And he came to the hospital and brought more pills and really for that next entire year, that first year of my daughter's life, I was completely off to the races again. I could not stop. I, the withdrawal was so bad. I had myself convinced that if I didn't use, I wouldn't be able to take care of my daughter. I couldn't, I would be too sick to read her a bedtime story or stay up with her or play with her, change a diaper. Um, and it was just this horrible cycle that I believed was the only way that I could survive and be present. You know, and I knew I wasn't a good dad at that point, but if I could just be present um, and not sick and not in withdrawal, then, you know, that was, that was the best that I could do. Um, and at the end of that, so after, you know, a year of doing that, I had, again, I'm still stealing. I'm still, you know, doing all these things. I'm 22 years old. I had to move back into my parents' house. Um, so I'm living at my parents' house with my girlfriend, a new baby. Um, and I started stealing and draining my parents' bank account. Uh, and that's when I was confronted again after so many other times, but it was this time that for the first time, since the first time I used, I always had an excuse, but when they came to me, it was four days after my daughter's first birthday. And I knew I was caught. I was, you know, taking their ATM card. I knew they were going to find out and I could not come up with an excuse. I didn't mm -hmm. want to tell another lie. I had nothing. Um, so when they confronted me and I saw the bank statements laid out across our, our dining room table. I, I knew it was over. Um, and fortunately they, you know, they asked me if I was willing to get help. And I said, yes. And how long ago was that? That was October 30th, 2012. So that was the, the first day that I walked into treatment and I've been in, in recovery ever since that day. Mm-hmm. It's a very powerful story. Powerful story. But, you know, the, the part of this that I love is that um, this is a journey. This is a journey. And, you know, if, if we continue to talk openly about what the journeys are like and the stories are like, perhaps we can demystify it and really break it down to its simplest factors, simplest points. Um, I don't know about you, but I know for, for myself, even people that know your journey, I'm not saying except perhaps for your parents, but know your journey, know what you've gone through, know what you're doing today, you could still put yourself in circles of people who will still offer you a drink. 
Why do you, just a little glass of wine here, Harry? You know, what harm could that do? And I, I really do believe, you know, I am a, I am a Marty Mann fan. I'm probably one of the people that looked at Marty's life, thanks to my uncle's introduction early on into who Marty was. And I saw what she did. You know, we are doing that now. We are talking about something that the numbers totally underrepresent. How do we know that? Alcohol sales online, now they're closer to 550% increase. So given where we are, I think part of the mystery and, and things that people do want to hear more about is this idea of treatment. Because many folks get confused. They think, well, I've got my child in a 12-step program, whether it's AA, MA, whatever the A's are. That's not treatment. And there is confusion. Can you talk about what treatment has meant to you and what it means in the world of addicts and alcoholics? Absolutely. I think for me, it was so important to, you know, both seek and, and receive quality substance use treatment. I had no idea what that was. The stigma of, you know, I thought I had to fix this on my own. And I remember something my dad said to me when I was going in, and then I'll go into the treatment a bit more, but he would travel for work all the time. And he used the analogy of when the oxygen mask falls, you have to help yourself first before helping someone else. And for me, um, first and foremost, treatment was an opportunity for me to get outside of my environment and focus solely on myself and my problems and, and try to address that without all of the external factors that I thought I had to keep up appearances just to, to survive. So I, w I was fortunate. I, w I went to care and treatment centers um, when I went to treatment and, and I was able to go to a program. I was 22 years old. I went to a program that Karen has that was specifically for young adult males. So it was guys between 18 and 26 um, in similar life circumstances that gave me an opportunity to really identify. Um, you know, and I think that that's something that that Karen does really well that I'm so proud to be a part of the organization now um, is putting people with groups that they can identify with because for so long when I used, I would point to someone else and say, well, I'm not that, or I'm not doing this, so I'm not bad. Um, but I couldn't do that in this group that I was in. But, but going in and having a full robust schedule where they woke us up early and we went all day with groups, individual sessions, um, specialty groups, depending on what I needed, whether it was um, a focus on trauma or, you know, looking at, do I want to go back to school? Do, what does a career look like? Because at that point, my life was at a baseline. There was no, I had nothing left to hold on to when I walked into there. So to have that, um, and for me, I had been able to manipulate my parents specifically, but educators at different schools and, and jobs and, and elsewhere, I have been able to manipulate everyone for so long that treatment was, was the first place where 
they called me out for what I was and what I was doing. And, and I didn't want to hear it, but I needed to hear it. I needed the clinical experts that could look at me and understand what I was going through and give clinical recommendations because I had friends and we would tell each other how we would try to stop using drugs and none of it worked, but these experts knew what I needed. Um, right. So to take a step back and listen was, was life-changing. Yeah. It's so life-changing that I, I don't know that folks quite understand some of the nuances, but for me, the minute I'm working with somebody, especially in the, you know, NA or the drug aspect of this, to request that they literally throw away a cell phone is a major transitional event. Now, why is that? Why wasn't that a thing 30 years ago? Well, right now, you can dial your dealer and you can have something deposited in your mailbox within minutes. It's a different world. And so it, re it requires a different set of principles and approaches. And I don't know about you, but I have sat in rooms with parents that have tried to just get their hands on a teen cell phone, which is impossible to do. So we are living in a world where you must have a structured, disciplined, and hopeful approach. And that's what you are doing. That's the organization you work with. Um, how do you or have you instilled hope in your life and hope in others now? I think for me, the first time that I felt that hope was in treatment, because like I said, before I got there, I had come to terms with the fact that I was going to die the way that I was living and it was hopeless. I couldn't see a way out. Um, and it was through people that worked in that treatment center. There was one guy specifically who was not my counselor, so he wasn't a threat. Um, but I watched this man and I listened to him talk about his life. And I could identify with, he might actually know what, he might have lived this, but I see him every day show up at work on time with a smile on his face. Um, and that was the hope for me, right? That there was somebody right in front of me that had done what I've done and had gotten through it to the other side and was happy. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, you know, what I've tried to do is just you know, even more recently, um, because when I first got into recovery, I was really cautious and I was closed about it and I didn't tell people and I, I did not work in this field. Um, so I worked in, in a different field where it was very much more stigmatized and I didn't talk about it. Um, and I came to terms with, there's not a lot of hope in that, you know, because I remember when I was using, I couldn't identify people in recovery um, so today I'm trying to get the word out there about, you know, not just the using aspect, but more importantly, the recovery, yeah. because my life today looks, you know, pretty normal, but it's amazing. And that's all because of recovery. So I could keep that and not tell anyone. Um, and I would still be happy, but, you know, to be able to just try to show people that it's possible because I didn't believe that because I yeah. had a 
And that's exactly why a year ago, Dr. Pat, I came to you and said, I need to do this show called Recovery Recharged. Yeah. Because you're going to shout from the rooftops that we want to be in recovery loud and proud. Yeah. And Harry just solidified that. Yeah. And now, Harry, how is the time with your daughter? Tell us. Yeah. Tell us about where you are now. It's been amazing. Um, Honestly, that has been... There's so many gifts, right? Um, but the relationship that I have with my daughter today is something that I could not have envisioned. When I walked into Karen in 2012, um, you know, I loved her, of course, but I couldn't imagine the relationship and the trust that we've developed. And, um, you know, I'm not with her mother. I've been married, her mom married, but, you know, we, we share 50-50 time with her her mother and I live within a mile. We get along extremely well. And that's both with my daughter, but with her mother and with my family, that that rebuilding of trust took a lot of time, right? Because my daughter was one year, just a year old, but I did a month at Karen. I was there for just over 30 days. And then I, I was recommended and I took the suggestion to go to a structured sober living home for another 90 days. So I disappeared from her life at a very important time for four months. Um, but she's, you know, in the other room now doing virtual schooling and, you know, she's my best friend. Um, you know, and I'm fortunate enough to now I have another son who was born uh, just last November. And and it's just a world of difference, the yeah. experience that I, you know, have, and I'm hopeful that, you know, he never has to see that side of it. Yeah. Who I am now. You know, people talk a lot about what, what one gives up when they go into treatment or recovery. Rarely are, not often enough, are we talking about what you get? We're not just talking about renewal. Maybe we are. Maybe we're talking about relief and a freedom. But when we talk about the promises that are associated with this, it's hard to describe the new and renewed you. And that's what you're sharing, right, Ellen? That's right. You get your family back. You get your life back. You get your whole world back. You understand what love is really about. And that begins with learning to love yourself. And I think a program like Karen um, certainly brings that to you. And you were very uh, upfront about that because we treat all of us, not only the drinking and the drugging, but the whole person. And that's what we get from recovery. So we really and truly understand mm. what it is. And Harry, that's a great story. Yeah, let's give out those websites. This hour went so quickly. Ellen, uh, for you, please give out yours. Absolutely. And, then, and Harry, give out Karen's website. So pushybroadfromthebronx.com, you all know me, the Recovery Recharge Show and my Women Who Push For More show. Please, please, please call me for coaching, 800-889-1757. Harry, talk to us about Karen. And again, Karen Treatment Centers can be found at karen.org. That's C-A-R-O-N.org. And on there, you can find information about our wide variety of programs, as well as my contact information, um, as well as there's other, I have many colleagues and counterparts in, in different areas that can really help you find the resources that you might be looking for. So don't hesitate to reach out. 
You've been listening to Recovery Recharged with Certified Life and Recovery Coach Ellen Stewart, pushy broad from the Bronx. Don't miss your next opportunity to let me help you recharge your recovery, let go of your secrets, and change the way you think, feel, and act right here on TransformationTalkRadio.com.